Get your Bibles out when you're ready. We're going to use them tonight. If you don't have a Bible tonight, hey, we'll have some scriptures on the screen. But if you've got one at home and you just don't, didn't bring it, next week, bring it. Because it's so good to be able to see it in your own Bible and uh, see that I'm not making anything up. But also that you can go home and you can check it out for yourself and you can reread and, and uh, you can read what, what came before what we read and what came after so you can gain some context and God can speak to you in those times. Uh, we've been going through the book of 2 Thessalonians. In fact, we went through 1 Thessalonians. Now we find ourselves in the second letter. And uh, there's a lot of hope in this letter. It's written to a, a group of people that, that had some fears. Um, namely, one of the things that they were really unsure of was the return of the Lord. You know, they, they, they were unsure about when and how, and, and, and they were also unsure if it, if it happened in their lifetime what happens to those of us that have already died in Christ, like that have already gone to be with the Lord? Are they, did they, do they miss out or what's going to happen? And the Apostle Paul reassures them in the faith. So a lot of this First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians really centers on the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord as well. Uh, but tonight, we're going to finish a thought that we started last week right in the first section of the, of the letter of 2 Thessalonians. So just turn there in your Bible if you've got one. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. The Lord has spoken through the Apostle Paul about some things that are going to happen um, some things that have happened to the church, you know, through his letter, we find out that uh, when they first received the word, it wasn't the easiest of time to become a believer. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you find out that Paul himself was chased out of the city. Um, and so, you know, the people that received the gospel did it when it wasn't convenient. But the Bible says that they did it in the true joy of the Holy Spirit, even amongst, even amidst tribulation, even amidst um, opposition, they received it in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And they truly, truly linked in to what God was doing. And the evidence was, he says in the first letter, that, that people all over, um, all over the provinces, the two, two provinces that were together, big Roman provinces, he says all over the nation, all over these provinces, people have heard of what God's doing amongst you. People have heard that you didn't just receive the word, you received the word with power, and then it changed you. By the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, he says this, and we'll reread something that we read last week just for context, but he says, to this end, I also, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we talked about that fulfilling every desire for goodness. What does that mean? For those of you that weren't here, let me just recap a little bit so that we can kind of get some context on what we're about to talk about tonight. But another translation talks about, uh, you know, that desire for goodness and words it this way, that it's a godly resolve. And I think in your life, if you were to think back, you can remember these moments. I mean, the first moment you ever had a desire, this, this godly desire in you was probably the moment you first became born again, that the Holy Spirit drew you and you responded to that. You responded to that drawing. You responded to that grace and faith. And that was that 
resolve. I've decided to follow Jesus. But you know, even though you had to decide to follow Jesus, you had no power to follow Jesus, right? You couldn't have, you couldn't have done it on your own. You, hadn't, you didn't have the first, not, not only the, not the first idea, but you did not have the strength, the willpower, the, the, the goodness within yourself to be able to do that. So what happened was, we didn't just say, we're going to follow you and we're going to do the best we can. We came to Jesus. He washed us. He made us clean. In fact, the scripture terms it this way. We were born again. We were recreated. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Our new self was raised with Christ. And so we, we became new people. And you still had your same old body. You still had your same brain. Some, sometimes had the same thoughts. And so there's people that come to the Lord that, uh, you know, I've, I've met plenty of people that came to the Lord, had no desire to go back to the drugs they were in, had no desire to go back to the alcohol they were addicted to. But I've had other people that came to the Lord, were set free, desired Jesus, and, and they still had to break some of those habits. They still had to break some of those things. And why that is, I don't know. But I know different people have had to fight through that and, say, and renew their mind with the washing of the water by the word, have had to say, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to think different because I know I am different. And I know that when that happened, you responded to something. But your response was the entry point, was the activation point where God's power could work in you. So we used the example last week of Peter being in a boat saying, Lord, if that's you, let me walk on the water to you. And Jesus responds to him and says, it's me. Come on out. Come to me. Now, Peter had to make up his mind right there in the boat. I'm going to do this. Jesus didn't say, you know, Peter didn't say, Lord, if it's you, have me come out on the water. And, and all of a sudden, a violent wind threw him out of the boat and he finds himself in the water. That didn't happen. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, Lord, if it's you, call me out. It's another thing to actually put a foot over the edge. Lift your leg over the edge of the boat and do it. And you know, the power of God, Peter did not experience the power of God to walk on water until his foot hit the water. So there's a godly resolve in him. There's a desire to do what Jesus called him to do. Jesus, in that moment, called him to himself. Said, get out of the boat and walk. That's a supernatural call. So the desire for goodness, the godly resolve, is when Peter said, okay, I'm going to walk to Jesus. And what did he do? He, he chose, he used his will to say, I'm going to do what Jesus said. Yes. You've got to do that. Your will is absolutely necessary. You say, well, not my will, but his be done. Yeah, that's, that's the right attitude. But you know when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, he was submitting his will to the Father's will. And when he did that, he used his will. Instead of doing what his will wanted him to do, he submitted and used his will to fulfill the will of the Father. I hope I didn't lose you there. But Jesus had to decide, I'm going to obey the Father. Right? Amen. I mean, come on, guys. You've read the same book I read. Did, did you notice God knocking him out and dragging him to the cross? No. In fact, you can hear him when he talks to his disciples or when he prays. He says, I must do this. I have to do this. I'm going to do this. Jesus made up his mind, set his eyes toward the cross, set his face toward the cross, and said, I will do this. And in that moment in the garden, he reconciled his will to the Father's will because it, there is part of his will that did not want to do this. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. When he said that, he didn't, his will didn't disappear, right? 
His will didn't just go into the air and he turned into a zombie and in a trance went to the cross. That's not what happened. When he said that, he used his will, he submitted his will to the Father's will and now he decided, I'm going to obey the Father. So for us, we surrender our will to God. We say, God, use me in whatever way you want to. But you may imagine that that means that God's just going to use you like a puppet, but that's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture illustrates and God illustrates and Jesus demonstrated it that we actually decide, God, I'm going to obey. And in that act of obedience, in that desire that God put in you, when you say, yes, Lord, then there is a work of faith that usually takes place. Let me give you another example. Every miracle Jesus did, you see how he relates to people and how he speaks to them. But many of those miracles, he says, pick up your bed and walk. Go wash your eyes in the pool. You know, go and, and be forgiven. Your sins are no more. He, he gave him a command. He gave him something to do. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul says to the lame man, stand up on your feet. Peter and John said the same thing, stand on your feet. So there was an action given to people. There was something they had to do, you know, because in that moment when their brain said to their legs, okay, I've never walked a day in my life, but the man of God said, walk. So I'm going to tell my legs to walk, even though they've never done it. In that moment of obedience, the power of God met them right there. They had no strength to walk, but the power of God was there. So we want to see these two things. Look at this. He will fulfill every desire for goodness, or as we've said, it could also be translated a godly resolve. You know, I've, I've had these moments in my life, I'm sure you have in yours, where you stood there, maybe it was a church service, maybe it was a prayer at home, maybe it was just out walking in the trees, and you knew that God had put something inside of you. There was a godly desire. I'm going to do something. I, the Lord has put something on my heart to do. And you know what I've done on Sunday when, when people are worshiping and, and we can sense and feel the presence of God. Now, it's not just on Sunday. We can sense and feel the presence of God any day of the week. But there's a lot of times when the people of God come together and we worship together that, that you really do sense God's in the room, right? You feel his presence. You know he's everywhere. But there's a sense of God because we're all opening ourselves to God, and, and, and there's a, a, an act of everyone worshiping together that it's, for at least for me, in those times, I, I feel very open to the voice of God. And there have been times where I've stood on the front row and I've said, yes, Lord, I'll do that. I will do that. And then Monday comes along, and I go, who is that idiot that made those stupid promises? What was I doing? What was I thinking? And I'll usually, you know, you try to talk yourself out of it like, well, the emotions were high. We were all a little too excited. We all said things we don't mean. Come on, man. I just was, you know, <laughs> we've been given 10% of our, of our income, minimum 10% to the Lord. And, and, and if the Lord comes, the Lord speaks to our heart and says, you know, you should give 15. In the moment, it's wonderful. Yes, Lord, I will. But then Monday comes along and you go, but... But I mean, I think I was carried away a little bit. And 
You know, the, the synth was really strong, and there was that, the warm pads they were playing, and that, that, that works me up, you know, and the drummer was doing a beat, and I don't know, you know, everybody was saying things, and, you know, but what I've learned is to trust those moments more than I trust the regular moments where I'm just thinking it through. To trust the Spirit of God, to trust my own spirit, to hear from God. And rather than talking myself out of it, to put myself in a position where I say, if God put that desire in my heart, if God put that resolve in my heart, I'm going to do this, then his power is there to get it done. Look what he says. God would fulfill, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness. Isn't that awesome? So God puts desires in you that he intends to fulfill through you. And the work of faith with power. All right, so let's say you're, 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 you've been fellowshipping with the Lord. There's this openness to God, and, and there's a desire in your heart. There's a resolve in your heart. You know what? I have not been spending enough time in prayer. I, you know, God, I want to spend more time. Let me tell you what. I'm going to give you half an hour every day of just concentrated prayer time. Now, to some of you, that seems like a lot. To some of you, that seems like nothing. But let's just say that happened, and you say, I'm going to give half an hour to the Lord. That's, that's that godly desire. But the work of faith is when, and we used this example last week, but the work of faith is when your job is so backed up, maybe you own a business or maybe you're a farmer or something, and, and things just got to get done, and you say, I don't have half an hour to give. I just don't. I don't have that half an hour. Lord, you understand. But instead, if you would say, if God put that in me, and if I just trust him, by faith, I'm going to believe. By faith, I'm going to obey the Lord and trust that he's going to make that work. Right? You know, the, the scripture says in, in Psalm 1 that, that the person who meditates on the word of God day and night will be blessed in everything he does, that everything he sets his hand to will prosper. So let's just say you said, I'm going to spend this much time in the word every day. But then your job got busy, your life got busy, and you said, listen, my company will fail if, if I don't get there right now. I don't have time to get into the Word. I got to do this. What you're saying is my well-being depends on me getting to the job right now. But faith says this, according to Psalm 1, my well-being depends on me getting into the Word. So the question is, am I walking by faith or am I walking by sight? And when you choose to act in faith and just obey the Lord, I've just used examples, but whatever the Lord's put in your heart, and you just choose to obey the Lord, that's a work of faith. But when he's involved and he does get involved, it's a work of faith with power. So God puts desires in your heart, and he's in that. But he also is there to get it done. You know, Philippians says this, he says, that uh, we should work out the salvation that's within us with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is at work in us to put the desire there, and God's at work in us to get it done. If you could believe that, those, those two things work hand in hand. If you can just trust when God puts something in your heart that it wasn't just a crazy idea you came up with. Now, God will confirm his word. He'll confirm it through his word. He'll confirm it through the spirit. He'll confirm it with other people. But when you know it's God and you just say, okay, I'm going to do it, then he's there to, to make sure that it gets done with power. 
Your part is to act in faith. His part is to supply the power to get it done. So I, 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 there was a guy in Loon Lake, and I think I might have told you this before, but bear with me if I'm repeating myself. There was a lady who came to me for counseling. These guys don't live in Loon Lake anymore. You, you probably will never figure out who they are, so don't worry about it. But she came, and she was so distraught because her husband had, was really just messed up in a lot of ways. He was not serving the Lord. I don't think he ever served the Lord. He didn't know the Lord. But, I mean, he was doing some things that most women would say, get out, get out, I'm getting out, we're not living together. So she came and said, I don't know what to do. I want to stay with him, but these things that he's doing, they're just not right. Now, he wasn't hitting her or anything like that. Don't, don't jump to those conclusions. But he was not being a, a good husband. And I remember saying, let's just pray together. So we did. And, and, and you know what? The Lord sustained her through this period of time. But I remember we had a New Year's service. It was around New Year's Eve. It wasn't New Year's Eve, but it was like the 30th. And it was a Sunday night. And we were all just praising God. And we were having a great time at church. And I opened my eyes, at least I thought I did, and I saw her with him and their son, and they all had their hands raised. And I blinked again and kind of did this, and he wasn't there. But it was so vivid what I saw. So I told her right then, I said, I, your husband was here? I, I see, he's coming, he's coming. And she, like, at that point, he was the furthest thing from Jesus. I mean, he was just the last thing you'd ever think. In fact, I don't even think she wanted him to come to church. She's just like, give me room. This is the one place I can go and be away from you, you know? But she got excited when we said that. Well, it wasn't but two months, maybe, maybe three. He was saved, and he was in church, and her son was there. Her son joined the youth band. They were praising the Lord. And her husband became so radically on fire for Jesus. Not only did he become a good husband, but he became the kind of believer that was just all in. And so he phoned me one day and he said, I want to know if I'm crazy or not. I said, all right, go for it, shoot, right? We'll see what you got. And he said, okay, so I have this craziest idea and I can't get rid of it. I have this crazy idea that I need to go to Meadow Lake and park my truck on the side of the road and put a big sign that says free prayer. And he said, and just everybody that stops, I'm just going to pray with them. He goes, and every time I think of it, it sounds like the stupidest, looniest thing I've ever heard. And I said, well, where'd this idea come from? He said, well, it came from a time of prayer. I was praying and this just came in my heart. And I, I said, I said, so is that something you would have come up with before you were born again? You would have just had a desire to go to Meadow Lake and park your truck and pray for people? He goes, well, of course not. I said, so it's probably not your idea, huh? I said, would you consider yourself a shy person? He goes, yeah, I usually am. I said, so this isn't the kind of thing you just do in your free time. It's just, you know, park on the side of the road and, and touch strangers. As weird as that sounds, I mean on the head. <laughs> He goes, no. I said, well, don't you see this is from God? He said, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure because I figured you'd tell me if I was crazy. I said, you are crazy, but that's okay. We're, we're doing this. You know, do it for the Lord. So he wrestled with that for a, a time. And he was like fighting with it. You know, it was, it was one of those things where he wanted to do it, but there was also a big part of him that said, you will probably look weird to a lot of people. You're, you're going to run into people you know. There's, there might be people from your job that see you. This could damage some relationships. But he went out and did it. And you know, God met him there. 
Because here was a guy who said, like, he said, you know, I've got, he said, I'm not like you. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't get up and just talk to people. I can't just get up and pray for people. And we just went through the word that says, absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. What, where did Jesus say only the, only the pastors, only the preachers are going to lay hands on the sick and see them recover? Where does he say that? No, he says, these signs will follow them that believe. And so he did it. And you know, the truth was, was that when he did that, that was his work of faith. God put a desire in his heart and God fulfilled that desire for goodness. And then God met him when he made that act of faith and just did it. There was power involved. He saw people healed. He saw people saved. He saw people who were just busted up and broken fall and just melt in that moment and come to Jesus. It was probably the greatest breakthrough he ever had in his life. And it actually spurred his wife and son along as well. So I think we can all identify with those moments where we felt a desire. And here's the prayer. Paul doesn't say, guys, buck up and start doing what you said you'd do. He says, I'm praying for you that God would fulfill every desire for goodness you have, every godly resolve that he put inside you, he would get it done, and the work of faith with power. Now, we talked about that last week, but here's where we're going to settle on this week. He finishes it up and says this in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to focus on that phrase that we as Christians kind of use all the time, but maybe you haven't really considered all that it means, which is that the name of Jesus would be glorified. When we talk about the name, you know, it seems in the Old Testament it's really important to God, his name. And I think many times for us in a 2017 Western mindset, we think of a name in the sense of, like I've said before, a sound that people make to call you, you know? Um, a group of letters put together that you identify by. That's your name. And, and even when we've talked about the name of Jesus, praying in the name of Jesus, some people, you might pray whatever you want to pray and they just slap in the name of Jesus at the end and you figured you've prayed in the name of Jesus, but that's not necessarily the case. Any more than if you went up to Cody and punched him in the face and said, in the name of Jonathan, I do this, and then said, you punched him in my name. You did not punch him in my name. Cody will crush you. But you didn't do that in my name. So here's the question. Why is it so important that his name is glorified? I mean, here's, here's the thing we know, that God is infinitely great. You know, like, he's mighty, he's great. He is full of compassion and love and mercy. He's holy. He's true. Like you can't make him any bigger than he is, right? Because he's just already infinite. There's nothing you could do to make him bigger than he is. And yet the scripture is full of commands to magnify the Lord. What does magnify mean? Make bigger. Well, God, how can I make you bigger? You can't make him bigger in reality. Like he is as big as he's going to be. But you can sure magnify him so that he's bigger in you. He's bigger in your heart. He's bigger in your thoughts. You see him bigger, and the people around you begin to see him as bigger than they've seen him before. So why does God need? Why is it that he constantly says that the Father may be glorified, that God may be glorified, that Jesus may be glorified? Why does he need all this glory? Why does he need us to praise him? Why does he need us to talk about him? Why is that so important? 
Is God just a great egomaniac in the sky that just can't get enough compliments? Is that what's going on? Or is there something much, much bigger going on? Let me tell you something, and let, you guys already know this. It won't be a surprise to you. God does not have a self-esteem issue, right? He's not up there going like, guys, I'm doing a good job, right? Just tell me if I'm doing a bad You would tell me, right? Do you think I'm beautiful? Do you think I'm beautiful? Sing that song about me being beautiful. Sing that song about me being altogether lovely. Go ahead, I like that one. Altogether lovely. Now, he is not insecure. That's the beauty of perfection. When you're perfect, you're not insecure. Right? He knows who he is. So he's not asking that we praise him because he just, he's just like up in heaven, just like the ultimate like narcissist, just saying like, I need somebody to tell me because I keep forgetting whether or not I'm that good. And I need you to build me up every day because sometimes it's hard. You guys don't appreciate what I do for you. No, he is a God who is completely self-sufficient. And yet, he needs us to praise him and glorify him, not for his own satisfaction, but because something changes in us and around in the people around us. If we would just believe, listen, we've been created by God. Do we all believe that in the room here? You were created. You weren't an accident. Somebody created you. Somebody created humanity. We weren't just a tadpole that went wrong. We we were created, right? We were designed. So we were designed by an infinitely intelligent creator. He knew what he was doing. And he created us in a way that we would be just completely, fully satisfied in him. We were created in him. We were created for him. We were created by him. We were created through him. So we were created for fellowship with him. You know, God does not have life. He is life. He does not have joy. He is joy. He does not have love. He is love. He's the source of all of those things. And everything that's broken in the world, everything that's broken in the planet, everything that's broken in society, and everything that's broken in us is broken because mankind separated themselves from that source of life. When Adam and Eve died, they didn't just die physically right there. But when they sinned, they died spiritually, and that was much worse. When they died spiritually, what happened? They were ashamed. They were naked. They, they, they knew they were naked. They were ashamed. They were, they were filled with fear. They blamed one another. Already, within seconds of their sin, the relationships were broken. Within seconds of their sin, they were broken because they separated themselves from all that was good. And Jesus came to reunite us to all that was good. Jesus came to reconcile man to God. You know that. So here's the great thing. God designed you, and he's got the owner's manual. And because he's got the owner's manual, because he knows how you work, he knows how you were designed, God has designed you in a way that you will be most satisfied when you are satisfied in him. That you will be full of joy when you fully are, are, are given over to him, that you abide in him. What did he say? He said, abide in me, let my words abide in you, let my love abide in you. And he said all of these things so that your joy would be made full. You ever thought about what fullness of joy looks like? It's joy that doesn't have regret. It's joy that doesn't have pieces missing. Fullness of joy means it's perfect. And the, the guy that demonstrated 
humanity how it was supposed to be. He demonstrated humanity in its perfect form, demonstrated humanity at its best was Jesus Christ. The man who designed us became us. And he showed us, this guy, this is how you live. The Bible says he had more, he was anointed with the oil of gladness above everybody else. He was the most full of joy, the gladdest person that walked the earth. He was the most satisfied, the most fulfilled. And yet he was the guy who said, I don't do what I want to do, I do what he wants me to do. Which is totally countercultural. If you go out there and you say, hey, let me ask you a question. Which will make you more happy? If you do the things that you want to do and you, and, you, and you do everything that you want to do or you do everything that God wants you to do, people will say, well, if I do whatever I want to do, I think I'll be happy. I think I'll be less happy if I do what someone else wants me to do. I don't think I'm being my full self. Isn't that what's, what we've been sold, right? That's what Oprah told us at least. You know, if you just do you, if you just be you, be yourself. Don't let anybody tell you who to be. You be yourself. Well, here's the problem. We don't know who we are. You don't really know who you are until you find out who he is. Because you were designed like hand in glove to be united in him, to function in him. What did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Just like a branch cannot survive without the vine, you can't survive without me. You can't do anything without me. You know, you could break that branch off and say, I'm freeing you. I'm freeing you from your bondage. I'm freeing you from the oppressive vine that, that keeps you bound. Fly, branch, fly, be free. What will happen? The branch will just die. Right? It won't grow. It won't bear fruit. You think you're making it happy by freeing it, but what you're doing is really killing it. Humanity has bought this lie that if we just are free from anyone else controlling us, man, like if, if I get to do what I want to do, then I'll be happy. But that's not true. It's not true because everybody that's doing what they wanted to do is more depressed than the rest of us. When they finally get what they've been chasing, they're more depressed than all of us because they realize it wasn't what they were looking for. So we find him. And Jesus, throughout his life, says, I remember in John chapter 12, he looks up to the heavens and he says, Father, glorify your name. And there's a voice from heaven that comes down and says, I have glorified it and I will again. Jesus says that, Father, be glorified in me and I in you. His last prayer is that he said, I've manifested your name to these people. I have Shown them your name. If we really understand what that means, that name. God is throughout the scripture saying, this matters, guys. My, my name matters. What is that name? That name is your reputation. It's everything you are. That name is what you're known to be. So the Bible says in Proverbs that a good name is worth more than all the jewels, all the gold in the world. If you're rich beyond belief, but you have a bad name, in other words, people think of you and they go, that guy is just a crook, a liar, a thief. That reputation, that name is more valuable than any possession. And God talks about his name being known. I love Ezekiel 36, where he says, I'm going to do all this stuff for you guys. The Israelites were in bondage. The Israelites have been taken off by Babylonians. The Ju uh, people of Judah have been taken away by the Babylonians. He says, I'm about to restore everything. And you know, those cities that have been wrecked and ruined, I'm going to rebuild them. 
the places that have been abandoned, that birds don't even live in. I'm going to make them like the Garden of Eden. I'm going to take the ruined places and make them beautiful again. I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to fill your cities with people. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to, I'm going to chase away your attackers. And he says this, and this is amazing. He goes, don't think I'm doing this for you. And, and that seems like, wow, that was unnecessarily mean, God. I mean, <laughs> he says, don't think I'm doing this for you because you guys, you guys don't deserve this. But he says, I'm doing this for my name. I'm doing this to vindicate my name. I'm doing this so that my name will be seen amongst the nations. I'm going to bless you beyond your comprehension, not for you, but for my name. So that they would know who I am. That's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought that Jesus said, I have manifested your name. What did Jesus go around doing? Healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out evil spirits, restoring people to the Father. At the end of his life, he said, I showed them your name. I showed the world who you were. When we talk about his name being glorified, we're talking about God's name being known for who he is. And here's why that's a good thing. I've come a long way to get to this point. It's not because God's an egotist and he's just like, man, say nice things about me. It's because when the world really sees who he is, they'll find life. They'll find who they are. The only way humanity is going to be redeemed and saved is by knowing him. So when his name is glorified, guys, what does that mean practically? What would it mean for his name to be glorified in Lloydminster? That would mean that everybody in Lloydminster, at least a large portion of people in Lloydminster, would have a right idea of who God is. Not who they thought he was. Not who some, some religious system taught them he was, but who he really is. That's why in order for Jesus to show them the Father, he didn't just, you know, he didn't just say, you guys have got it wrong, here's a book, read it. He demonstrated to them the Father. And we've said this before. Listen, if all he wanted to do was to prove he had power, he could have killed some people. He could have called down fire. He could have thrown some mountains into the ocean. But how did he demonstrate the name of the Father? He did good and healed all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He destroyed the works of the evil one. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out evil spirits. He restored people back to God. He proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord. In doing so, he didn't just show the power of God. He demonstrated the character, the name of God. That name was glorified in Jesus. So let me say this again. How do we glorify his name? He says, the way the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you is when God begins to fulfill those desires he put in you and the work of faith with power. That means when every believer starts saying, if God put it in me to do, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna trust that his power is there because that's why he's glorified when you do things you couldn't have done. Right? Do you know, (laughs) I'm about to admit something to you that I've never admitted to anyone. I don't even know if mom knows this. You guys are thinking this is bad. It's, it's not good. It's not terrible. It's not terrible. In sixth grade, we had a project, and we were supposed to make a science project. And like half the class made volcanoes, because that's the one thing everybody knows how to do, right? 
Mega volcano, pour baking soda and vinegar. <laughs> Look, huh? la di da, science project done. But me and my friend Kelly, uh, he was he 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 and I just said, okay, let's make a let's make a seismograph. Let's make a machine that detects earthquakes. Here's the problem: we didn't have the first clue how to do that. So I asked Dad for help. I asked Dad for help, and he says, okay, boys. You start nailing these things, these boards together. You start screwing these things together. So we did. Then he says, okay, you do this and you do this. Now, dad really helped us and we did all the work technically. But I never would have figured that thing out by myself. So I don't know if dad just got carried away. I think he did because my dad was a science geek. When he was a kid, he was winning state science fairs. So he was in his element. He was loving it. I think he loved it a little bit too much because Kelly and I looked at each other at one point and said, like, I don't know what we're doing, but let's just keep doing it. (laughs) So that would have been fine, except at sixth grade. So we bring it in, and our teacher, Mr. Aiken, was so impressed with us that he called the principal. The principal came to see our invention. They're heaping praise on us. We're standing there and just taking it, like, this is great. All right, this is great. We didn't tell anybody. We didn't figure this out. Basically, dad did it, but just made us do the work. So at the end of the day, I mean, we came home, our chests were puffed out, you know, and, and we took a lot of glory that was not ours. <laughs> the principal came, they brought other classes to come and see this invention. <laughs> and so to this day, I think about that, and I wish I had said something. But I think the problem was they thought we were that smart, you know? Like, it wasn't so amazing that we couldn't have potentially pulled it off. Because, I mean, it was, you know, you get to the certain point where the, the principal comes, but it's not, to, it's not to really marvel at your invention. It's to take you back to the office and say, okay, who helped you? You know, that's, that's when you know you pushed it too far. But this was just enough, like it was plausible that we could have come up with it. So we got the glory. We got the credit. And I wonder... When we do these things, I mean, there are just basic things that you do that people might think it was just you being a good person. Okay, so you gave a bunch of money to a charity or you you volunteered your time to feed homeless people, whatever you did. And people might say, well, you're just a good person. But there are times in your life where what you're doing is so far beyond what you have the ability to do that people begin to recognize it's not just them. There's something behind this. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 talks about God purposely using the mess-ups in life, the rejects in life, the people that aren't that bright, the people that aren't successful, and he uses them and he he gets a hold of them and he, he does these amazing things so that he can prove to the world that he did it. I mean, it doesn't mean he just uses dumb people. (laughs) And you, you decide if that's you or not, right? But it does mean he loves to use people nobody expects, that he gets the glory. I wonder if all of us, no matter how highly you think of yourself, if all of us could get to the point where we say, I truly will believe what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He says that we are the light of the world. He doesn't say that just he's the light of the world. He says we're the light of the world. And he says nobody hides their light under a basket or under the bed, but they put it on a lampstand for all to see, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And he says, therefore... Shine your light in such a way that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Now listen to that. Think about that. There's a way to shine your light that he gets glory. And there's a way to shine your light that you get glory. But he says, shine it in such a way that your father gets glory. And I want to address something that, that pops up every now and then in, a, in church. And it's fear of doing anything out of a sense of false humility. You know what I mean? God says, I want you to do this. And we go, no. Nah. No, I don't need the glory. I just want to stay in the background. The Lord says, no, I, I want to use you in this way. Oh, no, not little old me. Oh, use, Lord, I'm just happy working in the shadows. And it feels somewhat good to be that humble, doesn't it? To feel like you're holier than God feels good. I'm so holy he can't use me. That's a problem. It's a problem because Jesus said, nobody hides the light. They put it on a lampstand. Now here's the question. Who puts you on a lampstand? Jesus. He said a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It wasn't accidentally on the hill. Somebody put it on a hill for a reason. I want you to embrace the idea that maybe, just maybe, God will put you in a position where people will see you. And they'll see you doing something that's beyond yourself, loving beyond your ability to love, giving beyond your ability to give, walking in a power that only comes from God, walking in the fruit of the Spirit that you couldn't have come up with on your own, you couldn't manufacture, you can only be so patient, you can only be so kind, but somehow you just keep pushing through. And what is it? It's God working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God fulfilling your desire for goodness. You see, you had to have that desire. You had to let that desire stay. You had to receive that desire. But when you acted in faith and said, I'm just going to do it, God's power was there to meet you. And he says this, guys, that if you would shine your light, go ahead and shine your light. Oh, but God, I don't want to be on the lampstand. I don't think I deserve to be there. If you'll shine your light in this way, the way he's told us to shine our light, people will see you. This is what it says. People will see your good works. They'll see what you're doing. But they won't say, what a good thing you're doing. They say, look what God is doing. Are you afraid to be seen? Because you think that would be pride. If that's the case, let God deal with your pride. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. If you're going to humble yourself, you better be okay with the fact that he'll exalt you. Some of us just want to humble ourselves and stay down there. Just keep your hand over me. Don't let anybody see me. But the point of humbling yourself is that he exalts you. I don't want to read something else to you that I think hopefully will bring this to a loop. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture in 1 Peter. He says this, and, and we quoted this last week, but I'll read it again. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, says, As each one has received a special gift. Um, the reason it says special gift is because the Greek word for gift there implies a uniqueness. Um, the fact that we don't all have the same gifts. So as each one has received a unique gift, employ it, put it to work in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What did he say in that verse that we read in 2 Thessalonians? That 
God would be glorified through Jesus. Jesus would be glorified through you and you and him according to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is glorified when we walk in that grace. If you, wanna, you want God to be glorified, walk in the grace of God. What does that mean? That means, <laughs> that means he's empowering me to do what I couldn't do, be who I couldn't be. I am who I wasn't. As Paul said, I am the least qualified to be an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain, for I worked harder than everyone else, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God working through me. Look what he says. Employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to speak as the oracles or the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. You guys know that you can serve in your own strength. But there is a way to serve that goes beyond your strength, that relies on the strength of God. Whoever is speaking, don't just get up and give a good, nice little message. Say, God, you need to speak through me. I want you to speak through me. Go beyond my logic, go beyond my reasoning, go beyond my learning and speak through me. Whoever serves, you don't just say, I'm gonna do my best. You say, God, I expect that your grace is working through me. I'm stepping out on a limb here. I'm serving, I'm, I'm doing something that I'm feeling stretched, I'm feeling uncomfortable, but I know, God, that you're the one that's supplying strength for me to get this done. So serve in the strength that God supplies so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is glorified through Jesus when Jesus is glorified through you. And how is Jesus glorified? When we take that desire for goodness and trust him with it, and we step out in faith and expect that his power is there to get it done. When God shows his power through people like us, he gets credit. When God shows his power through people like us, he gets his reputation out there. You might say, God doesn't need me. I mean, couldn't he just come and put on a fireworks show? Couldn't he just come and send angels and, and get everybody's attention? He could, but he didn't. He wants to use us. And if we're all a little too humble to be used by God, now, I'm not talking about real humility. You can't be too humble. Be as humble as God. I mean, be, be, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. Humility is such a huge part. Without humility, we deny the grace of God. But let's, let's separate real humility from false humility. False humility says, God, don't use me. I'm just a nothing person. I'm just a little person. True humility says, apart from you, I can do nothing. But through you, you can do anything through me, God. Use me however you want to use me. All things are possible. That's true humility. Jesus was an example, was the example of true humility. Jesus didn't just stay back in Nazareth going, well, Lord, I would... I would preach, but I don't want people to look at me. I don't want them to look at little old me. Why? I want to be that, just that person in the corner that just, just is serving you in their own little way. Now, Jesus had to step out and be used by God in ways that put him in the spotlight at times. But when you looked at Jesus, you saw the Father. And when Jesus did what he did, he glorified the Father. He says that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory. And that's the point. He is worthy of that glory. He deserves that glory. He's earned that glory. 
Isaiah 26, 8 says this, Lord, we've walked in your ways, we've walked in your commandments, for your name and your renown are the desires of our souls. Imagine a group of people who say, your name and your renown, your name and your fame are the thing we desire more than anything. I want to end with this thought. Could we become a group of people that desire one thing, that his name and his renown would fill the city? That the city would know God. That the city would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That people would begin to know that God's reputation would get out. That Jesus would be made famous in our city. How is that going to happen? You say, well, everybody knows who Jesus is. They know the name and they know some of the stories, but they don't know who Jesus is. I guarantee you they don't. People, they think they know who Jesus is. You ask them who Jesus is, they say, long hair, beard, got the weird crown hat thing on. They don't know Jesus. But they will know Jesus. They will know his name when his people rise up and let themselves be used by God. He'll get glory from that. And let me just put it simply for you. Has God put desires in your heart? Has God put things in you that you resolved, yes, Lord, I will? Well, he'll fulfill that desire for goodness. And he'll fulfill the work of faith with power. So go ahead and act on your faith. At some point, that desire has to become real. At some point, you gotta step out. At some point, you got to step up. At some point, you got to go from saying that's a nice little dream to actually saying, Lord, let it be done. And it might take some time. It might be immediate. But act on it. And trust that God's power will be there when you act on it. It's a nice thing to say, Lord, call me out and I'll walk on the water. It's another thing to stick a leg over the side of the boat and do it. That's what we got to do. And know this. Don't ever let the enemy lie to you and say, oh, you're just doing this for your, own, for your own reputation. You're just doing this to get attention. You're just doing this so people look at you. Is that why you're doing it? Or are you doing this for the glory of the Lord? I know the enemies use that lie against Christians so that they'll step back and never do anything. But if you need to get your heart right, get your heart right. Do it for the glory of God. Don't stand back and say, well, don't, I don't need to be used. I don't need to be seen. Stop. The Lord wants to put you on a lampstand at some point so that you can shine and show him, show the world his glory, that his name would be known. Amen? Amen. That name that he earned, that name that he gave his life for, that name that he emptied himself, became a bondservant even to the point of death. And when he died on that cross and was risen from the dead, God glorified him, exalted him, and gave him that name which is above every name. That name needs to be made known. That name needs to get around the city. That reputation needs to get out that this is who he is. Amen? Amen. Praise God.